Now, as we come towards the end of chapter 12, Matthew tells us about still one more way in which the people of that day expressed their rejection of Christ, and that was by the religious leaders trying to publicly discredit him. Matthew informs us that there was a special committee made up of scribes, who were the official interpreters of Judaism, and Pharisees, the religious leaders of of that uh, most popular of sects in Israel. And they got together and they came asking Jesus to show them a supernatural sign that would prove that he was Israel's Messiah and King. Now, as we discovered last week, these men were not sincere. They really didn't believe he would do this. Uh, these were the same leaders who had already rejected you know, Christ's miracles that he had done prior to that, the physical healings, the casting out of demons. All of that was to authenticate him as Messiah. Those were the signs, but that wasn't good enough for them. Therefore, the kind of sign that they were requesting was something else. Rejection of Jesus Christ by his own people. Well, that's a great way to start a verse-by-verse broadcast. Our teacher, Steve Kreloff, is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, where he is known for exegetical or verse-by-verse teaching of the Bible. So as we dive into today's verse-by-verse broadcast, Pastor Steve is going to recap the various ways and times Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people. They were the most privileged people on the face of the earth. They were part of the covenant nation of Israel. God had revealed himself to them. They were able to hear and observe Jesus Christ in the flesh. We read about him. We certainly can know about him. But they saw him and heard him physically. However, in spite of all this, they rejected him. A handful of people, of course, accepted him in his day. But most rejected him. That is how Pastor Steve is going to start today's verse-by-verse broadcast. Let's open our Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 12 as we continue our study of this wonderful book named after the gospel writer Matthew. We are nearing the end of this chapter. We're not quite there, but we are looking at a very significant section and passage. And I want to read to you, Starting in verse 38 all the way to verse 45, it is one unit, it is one section. We began last week to look at this, and so we want to pick it up this week, delve further into it. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, 
It passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That's the way it will be with this evil generation. Years ago, one of the credit companies came up with the slogan, membership has its privileges. Maybe you remember that slogan. Well, that statement is also true in the spiritual realm. This passage of scripture that we have just read reveals that the Jewish people of our Lord's day were the most privileged people on the face of the earth. Not only were they privileged because they were part of the covenant nation Israel in which God had revealed himself to them, but they were that unique generation, uh, unique in the sense that they were able to hear and observe Jesus Christ in the flesh. We read about him, we certainly can know about him, but they saw him physically. They They heard him with their ears. They saw him with their eyes. However, in spite of all of their remarkable privileges, they didn't take advantage of those privileges because in spite of having Jesus in their midst, they absolutely rejected him. A handful of people accepted him in his day, but most rejected him. Now, the Apostle Matthew, who is the author of the Gospel account that we've been studying, devotes two entire chapters, chapters 11 and 12, to tell us about the various ways that the Jewish people of Christ's day rejected him. It wasn't all uniform. They had some variety in the way they expressed their rejection. For example, in chapter 11, verses 16 through 19, you don't need to turn there, but uh, the passage tells us that some rejection came in the form of extreme criticism. Jesus said this generation is like children playing in the marketplace. Someone suggests they play a game and someone says, no, I don't want to play that game. And someone says, how about we play this game? No, that game's not good enough. Jesus said, your criticism is like that. No matter what I do, you find fault. John the Baptist comes not eating and drinking, meaning he did not drink any alcoholic beverage. And you say, as a demon, I come and I'm eating and I'm drinking wine and you say, He's a drunk. He's gluttonous. He said, no matter what I do, it doesn't satisfy you. So extreme criticism. Secondly, sometimes their rejection came in the form of apathy and indifference. Jesus said that there were three cities in Galilee that he specifically condemned because those three cities, though they saw most of his miracles, they were totally apathetic. They didn't repent. But not only didn't they repent, they didn't even get upset. Everybody else seemed to get upset at him, but they didn't get upset. They didn't think he was worth getting angry about. And another form of rejection came in the form of intense hostility and outrageous accusations by the Jewish religious leaders. They accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. They accused him of casting demons out of people because Satan was empowering him. It was absolutely outrageous. Now, as we come towards the end of chapter 12, Matthew tells us about still one more way in which the people of that day expressed their rejection of Christ, and that was by the religious leaders trying to publicly discredit him. Matthew informs us that there was a special committee made up of scribes, who were the official interpreters of Judaism, and Pharisees, the religious leaders of of that uh, most popular of sects in Israel. And they got together and they came asking Jesus to show them a supernatural sign that would prove that he was Israel's Messiah and King. 
Now, as we discovered last week, these men were not sincere. They really didn't believe he would do this. Uh, these were the same leaders who had already rejected, you know, Christ's miracles that he had done prior to that, the physical healings, the casting out of demons. All of that was to authenticate him as Messiah. Those were the signs, but that wasn't good enough for them. Therefore, the kind of sign that they were requesting was something else. It was not a physical healing. It was not something earthly. Based on what other scriptures say at other times when men like this came to Jesus, we would assume that what happened here was that these men were asking for some type of a sign from heaven, some type of a heavenly sign, meaning some type of sensational miracle that was to take place in the skies. We don't know precisely what that would be, maybe calling fire down from heaven, maybe altering the stars, the moon, whatever. It was some spectacular sign in the heavens. But understand this, the only reason they asked Jesus for that type of a sign was precisely because they didn't think for one moment that he could pull it off. That's what this is about. Remember, they'd already made up their minds. They decided that he was a fraud. That, that was their decision. That, and they were confirmed in that. They just wanted to publicly expose him as a fraud before the crowd of people. They had rejected him. They wanted the general population to agree with them. In other words, they didn't expect Jesus to show them a sign from heaven because they really didn't think he was capable of doing anything like that. Their attitude was this. They felt that up to this point he had fooled many people by performing magic in healing people by Satan's power. But now their their attitude is this. Look, Jesus, we're calling your bluff. We know you've been faking, but now we're calling your bluff by asking you to perform a different kind of a miracle that we know you cannot possibly do. But they were absolutely wrong. Jesus Christ is God, and therefore he is capable of doing any miracle that he chooses to do. But he chose not to do the kind of miracle they were asking. Not because he couldn't, but because he, he wouldn't, it wouldn't have done any good. He refused to accommodate their request for a sign of this nature because instead of trying to convince these men that he was the Messiah by impressing them, he told them that they were evil. He told them that they were adulterous. And not only that, he expanded it to the entire generation, the, that is, the nation that followed them. Two times in this passage, or at least at the beginning and end, he calls them an adulterous and an evil generation. That's why we know that the unit of thought begins in verse 38 and ends in verse 45. It is one unit of thought. He's talking about an evil and an adulterous generation. They were evil in the sense that they were wicked. They were unfaithful in the sense, or adulterous in the sense, that instead of being faithful to the Lord, they were fooling around with another mistress, and their mistress was organized religion, not biblical truth. So we need to understand that the Lord's comments are intended to include that entire generation of unbelieving people, in spite of the fact, and here's the point you need to see, in spite of the fact that they were a deeply religious people, meticulously observant of their traditions. In fact, Israel has been called in the past a, a, a God-intoxicated people. In spite of all of that, Jesus characterized them as wicked and adulterous, but he did more than that. In the verses before us, the Lord explained why the Jewish nation, led by their spiritual teachers, was so wicked as he pointed out some of the unique characteristics of religious unbelief. 
In other words, Jesus told these men that in spite of their deep devotion to their religious traditions, in rejecting him, they revealed themselves to be wicked, they revealed themselves to be unfaithful to God, the God that they said they loved, but in reality they they hated him. Now, why is this teaching so important for us? Because it gives us very critical insight into what the unbelief of religious people looks like and, and why it's so dangerous. The unbelief of religious people people who are involved in uh, denominations, people who are very heavily involved in their churches, whatever religion they're involved in, that unbelief looks different than the unbelief of people who are ignorant. Both are without excuse, but there's a certain look and danger to being involved in religious unbelief. Now, as we pointed out last week, there are many people today who have some exposure to Christianity. Perhaps they grew up in a Christian home. Perhaps they went to a Christian school. They know some Bible truth, but they have rejected Christ. They are deeply religious. They are committed to whatever church they go to, but they continue to reject Jesus. And the Lord's teaching in this passage gives us some very important insight into what religious unbelief looks like in terms of its general characteristics and why it is so dangerous. So today we want to continue our study of this passage as we discover two specific characteristics of religious unbelief. Now we started to look at the first one last week. We're going to see that but go deeper and then we'll move on to finish this section. Matthew tells us in verses 38 through 40, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, as we saw last Sunday, Jesus turned down their request for a stupendous heavenly sign. And the reason he did that is because for the simple reason he knew that it wouldn't make a difference. And also, Jesus didn't cater to people who had no interest in him. He didn't satisfy their curiosity. But he knew that it would never have made any kind of difference in their attitude towards him. They had already rejected all of the evidence that God had provided, and uh, he wasn't going to do anything more. Not what they were asking for, at least. These men were not about to change their minds, and they were uh, determined to continue to reject Christ, even if he had given them the most stunning display of his power in the heavens. Now, let me once again reiterate a very important truth that we all need to grasp. People who have been exposed to Christianity, but continue to reject Christ, have a sin-hardened heart, and they will not become genuine disciples of Christ, even if they see all kinds of miracles. Now, that ought to be very helpful to you because there's some people who spend the brunt of their time in so-called witnessing opportunities to try to point out all the evidence and all the miracles and all that really doesn't do any good. There may be a place for that, but that's really not the heart of what we, we share. Why? Because man's real problem is that his heart is in total rebellion towards God. And miracles never address rebellion. Miracles may initially excite some people. Miracles may even temporarily satisfy their enthusiasm for the supernatural. But miracles will never change an individual's attitude towards Christ. For that to happen, they need an inner cleansing, an inner transformation, which the Bible refers to as regeneration, or a more popular term is being born again. That is when God gives you a new nature, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and you are not reformed morally, you are transformed inwardly. You are changed on the inside. Your behavior eventually begins to change on the outside, but because you've had a new 
heart implanted in you by the Spirit of God. And I want you to see for yourself that Jesus was not naive about the the kind of impact that his miracles had on people. Let's look at John chapter 2. Let's keep our place in Matthew 12, but let's look over at John chapter 2. And I want you to see something that's very helpful, very interesting, and perhaps you've never seen this before. Because usually we stop at the end of chapter 2, but the thought continues from John's perspective into chapter 3. There probably should not be a chapter division here. Those are not inspired. Those were placed there many years later. And I think most of the time those chapter divisions are helpful. In this case, I don't think so. I think they obscure the the meaning of the text. But notice chapter 2 of John's Gospel, verse 23. Now, when he, he being Christ, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. We're told by John that many people believed in Christ because they had observed the many miracles that he was doing. Now, if this were all, if this was all that we were told, we might conclude that these people were all converted because the signs convinced them that Jesus was the Messiah, and then they submitted themselves to Him. They they yielded to His authority. They were committed and submitted to Him. But notice what we're told in the next two verses, twenty-four and twenty-five. But Jesus, on His part, was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. We're told that even though they said they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not commit himself to them, as he would to those who were genuine believers. Why? Well, the implication is very clear, I believe, is that Jesus knew that many of these individuals were just enthusiastic about him because of the miracles. There was nothing deeper than that. No commitment to him. No conversion, no submission to his lordship. It didn't go beyond being excited about these supernatural miracles. However, notice how chapter 3 begins. This is why I say there, I don't think that the thought stops here and then a new thought continues in chapter 3. I think it's all together. Notice this. Now, and the thought here is, but, in contrast to these people, but there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. seems like what John is saying is that you have all these people in Jerusalem who hung around Jesus and were very excited, but they were not converted. They, they, were, they went no deeper than a curiosity about the miracles. But there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And what John is telling is this man was different. This man did have an open heart. This man was not like other Pharisees. This man was not like those who were enthralled with his miracles. This was a different man. This was a different kind of a man in contrast to these others. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, and, and when Nicodemus said Rabbi, he meant it, not in a mocking way like the scribes and Pharisees did. Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. And we know that. Now, how, how did Nicodemus know that? He said, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus came to Jesus to really find out who he is. He saw these miracles. He he did not conclude like his uh, religious colleagues that Jesus was blasphemous and Jesus was satanic. He said, I want to know. I want to know who you are. I want to know about this. But you know what? The Lord who reads our hearts 
and knew what the real issue was, got right to the heart of the issue in verse 3. Notice this. Nicodemus didn't ask about what Jesus is going to say. Jesus just got to the heart of the issue because miracles are not the issue. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, could you imagine Nicodemus? He wants to know about these signs and Jesus said, you have to be born again. Why? Because that's the issue. That's really what, what was on his heart anyway. I want to know, Nicodemus, in his heart at least, was saying, I want to know how a person can be uh, in the kingdom of God. And Jesus knew that's the issue, not the miracles, not the miracles at all. He told Nicodemus that he needed an inner spiritual transformation, which essentially means a new nature, regeneration, being born again. If we were to go further in this passage... The Lord spoke about the cleansing, the the water and the spirit. All he was doing is telling Nicodemus what he already knew. Back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel spoke of an inner cleansing that God God does compared to to water. God, by his spirit, cleanses us on the inside. That's why I said later to Nicodemus, you're a ruler of the Jews, you don't even know this? It's in Ezekiel. I mean, I'm paraphrasing it, but that's, that's the thought. So that's what he's telling him. And so, folks, understand, we, we derive from this and other scriptures, understand that miracles never change anyone's hostility towards Christ. Therefore, I say again to you, don't spend the bulk of your time in witnessing trying to convince someone to come to the Lord by giving them all kinds of supernatural evidence for Christianity. There may be a place for that, but it's not the heart of what we say. Instead, the heart of what we say is the message of the gospel. Tell them about God's holiness, that he must punish sin. Tell them about sinfulness, what it is. It's not just outward manifestations of stuff. It's a, it's a heart of rebellion. It's a heart of defiance towards God. And, he, and this sinners need forgiveness because God is holy and just. And forgiveness is only found in Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And they need to repent of their sin and turn to Christ to save them for all of eternity. That's what we share with people. Not, not the signs. Not, not all the evidence. And so Matthew tells us, as we go back to Matthew 12, that Jesus refused to grant the scribes and the Pharisees their request for a heavenly sign. However, he did tell them about another sign that he would eventually give them. He called it the sign of Jonah the prophet. And as we saw last week, meaning that Jonah's miraculous deliverance from death, as he was three days and nights in the belly of this great fish, was a divine picture a prophetic picture, a divine picture of Christ's resurrection as he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, we just touched on this last week. I want to spend a few minutes here and I want to consider a couple of of very significant issues that are related to what Jesus had to say concerning Jonah and his experience of being swallowed by this great fish. First of all, It is very clear, notice, it is very clear by this statement that Jesus believed in the historical accuracy of the story in the Old Testament about Jonah and a fish that swallowed him. That's important to understand because liberal theologians have scoffed at this story about Jonah being swallowed by a fish for for years. And they've said that uh, obviously it's not to be taken literally, that is humanly impossible for a man to be swallowed alive by a fish and then survive for three days. And there are some 
evangelicals, Bible believers, who have tried to answer these scoffers by delving into the past and coming up with some remarkable incidents of men in history who were swallowed alive by a huge fish and they did survive. And you know what? There, there are examples of that in history. But I say it's so unnecessary. So unnecessary to... Uh, to do that. It's not necessary because the reason we should believe in such an unusual event happening to Jonah isn't because some other men in history experienced similar experiences, making it sound humanly credible and feasible. That's not why we believe it. It doesn't matter if anybody else experienced what Jonah experienced. We believe it because Scripture says it and Jesus Christ confirmed that it literally happened. Toward the end of today's broadcast, Pastor Steve dropped some very important information on us. Did you catch it? He said we need to understand that miracles will never change anyone's hostility toward Christ. So we shouldn't spend the bulk of our time in witnessing using supernatural evidence to convince someone to put their faith in Jesus Christ. There may be a place for that, but it's not the heart of what we say. Instead, we share the gospel. We tell them about God's holiness and human sinfulness and the fact that we are born with a heart of defiance towards God. We need forgiveness and that is only found in Jesus Christ. We'll be wrapping up this series called Words Have Meaning in the next two verse-by-verse broadcasts so I think you can count on some more practical application from Pastor Steve. Please join us next time for Verse by Verse. 